0: As we prepare to read and hear the word of the Lord exhorted, let's pray that he would bless it to us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. You do not remain in silence, but you have made your word known. We pray that through the reading of your word this night, you would upbuild your saints, that you would call those who do not know you to repentance. We pray that you would be at work through the reading of your word and we pray this in the name of our only Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. You may be seated. Tonight's text is from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 55, and we'll be focusing on verses six through 13. We'll read the whole chapter to get more of the context, but Isaiah 55, right before the prophet Jeremiah, and right after all of the wisdom literature So right after Song of Solomon. This is the very word of the Lord from Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Amen. As we come to consider these verses from Isaiah 55... This chapter is answering a very important question that's important to those who are hearing this for the first time in the context of when it was first written. And if you fast forward a little bit to the exile that Isaiah was prophesying about, it has even more relevance for them and it still has relevance for us today. Those first two verses that we're considering, those are six and seven. Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The rest of the verses that follow from this are all connected to this main couple verses and this statement. This statement that the Lord will forgive the wicked when they come to him. And in a way, it's answering an objection of, how can the Lord forgive the wicked? For the Israelite who may be sitting in exile after God has brought judgment on them for their sins against the Lord, brought them to Babylon, they're wondering how could the Lord forgive the wicked? How could he forgive me? I've seen his judgment on the wicked, and I know his word, I know he says in Proverbs that he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are an abomination to the Lord. So how could he forgive me? So there's this hesitancy to come to the Lord as he has commanded here in these verses. And the remaining verses in our passage answer that objection. And this this remains true for us. Often you and I may wonder, I have sinned against the Lord. I have broken his law. I have not loved my neighbor as I should. I have lied, I have cheated, I have steeled. I have not loved the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. How could he forgive me? who has so broken his commandments. I know he is holy, he cannot abide wickedness to abide with him, how could he forgive me? And this passage gives us several answers and points to the ultimate answer in Christ at the very end. But some of those ways in which the Lord removes the objections of the wicked who are hesitant to come to him, who doubt that he can forgive them is by saying that he can forgive because his ways are not our ways, and because his purposes are inevitable, and because of his unbreakable covenant. Those will be our three points this evening. Because his ways are not our ways, because his purposes are inevitable, and because of his unbreakable covenant. And as we move to that first point, because his ways are not like our ways, we see those Next two verses, verses eight and nine, talking about the Lord's thoughts and the wicked's thoughts. And some think that this is purely moral. The Lord is simply saying, my ways are not your ways because you are sinners, you are wicked. And there is certainly an element of that. And there's this picture of repentance there as the wicked are supposed to return to the Lord, to turn from their ways and their thoughts and turn back to God. We can see that in one of the questions we read from the Heidelberg Catechism, where repentance involves this turning where question 87 says, can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and unrepentant ways? So we have in this passage a wonderful picture of repentance where there are those who turn from their sins and they turn to the Lord and they seek compassion and forgiveness with Him. That is what repentance is, it's a turning from something to the Lord, turning from anything that is keeping us from coming to Him As we read the rest of the catechism, of course, we're told that there are two elements to this repentance. There's a dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. And part of that repentance is for the wicked to see that their ways are not like the Lord's ways and to flee from their ways, to be sorry for them and to run to the Lord for forgiveness. But this is not merely a moral otherness that the Lord is speaking about. He's speaking about who he is. He is not a creature like us. He is the creator. His ways are not our ways, he dwells in heaven. And heaven is not merely a distance from the earth. In scriptures and in the ancient Near East, it was considered another realm, the realm of the spiritual beings. And you can think of Isaiah six in the throne room of God where Isaiah is drawn up before the Lord and he sees the Lord sitting on his throne surrounded by his angels. And so what is being said here with my ways are not your ways, and as high as the heavens are from the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, is that the Lord is God. He is the only God. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is not like us, weak creatures that we are. And Isaiah and the Lord have been establishing this for the last 15 chapters. If you start reading in chapter 40, there's this polemic against those who worship idols. And ultimately what Worshiping idols means is worshiping any created thing and not the creator who made all things. So the Lord is saying, who are you to doubt that I can forgive you? I am the Lord, my ways are not like your ways. I am not limited to the way that you think about things. And we can also see this in the means that the Lord often uses to call his people to repentance and to faith and the ways in which he works in history. This is not just an abstract truth, but we see this on the pages of scripture itself. If you think of Esther, the book of Esther, and how Israel is saved by a young teenage girl, the Lord doesn't need to use anyone who is strong and powerful. He uses this weak and helpless teenage girl to save Israel and to preserve his messianic line, his promised seed of David who will come. We can also see this in the calling of Israel The Lord says multiple times, I did not call you because you were the strongest or the greatest. I called you because you were the least of the nations. They had no power in themselves. The Lord was manifesting his power and his glory by working through these weak means. And we can ultimately see how the Lord will work through these things that seem foolish in the cross of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians we are told that the Lord has used what is foolish in the world to shame the wisdom of the wise. To the Greeks who looked on, this Christian religion seems strange. They are practicing and worshiping this man who was crucified. They're saying he is God, and yet he was crucified on a tree. How could this man save anyone when he did not save himself? And yet we know, as Paul says, that the Lord uses these means to save It is the power of God made manifest through this weakness. He has conquered through the cross and he has raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. The Lord is not limited to the way that we think about things. He's not limited to creaturely ways of going about things, but he is establishing his glory as the only God, the only creator who has power over all things by using these weak means to save us and to call his people. we also see how we cannot limit the Lord and put him in a box. This, these verses following on verses six and seven are almost a rebuke in telling the Israelites and us who may be doubting, how could the Lord forgive me that he is the Lord, he will do what he pleases and he will do what is just and what is right because he is holy and he is good, but he is not limited to our doubts that we may have about the capability of the Lord God, but he has all power. He can do all things. He has called everything into existence. He has stretched the heavens and formed the foundations of the earth. He is not limited to our ways of thinking. We cannot put him in a box. And so we see how the Lord is free to be able to forgive the wicked because his ways are not like our ways. And next we will see how he can do this because his purposes are inevitable. And we see this in verses 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it." The Lord is in complete control. He is not subject to the same problems we are subject to. What he decides to do, he will do. For you and I, we have many purposes and for one reason or another, we can't fulfill them. Perhaps it's because of our own sin. We failed to do what we promised to do because we are false and not true. We've promised too much or we've said something that we can't do. Sometimes it's due to a lack of power where we would love to do this thing. We would love to accomplish this purpose, but we can't. We're not strong enough. No matter how much you and I want, we can't bring back somebody from the dead, but the Lord can. His purposes are sure he can do all things because he is almighty God. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and whatever he intends to do, he does. And we see this even in the book of Isaiah itself as Isaiah is prophesying about Israel going into exile. He's prophesying about the nations coming and sacking Israel to the eyes of the nations. It would seem that the Lord has lost. But the Lord is using this to chastise his people and to draw them to repentance. And ultimately, the nations will face judgment for going beyond what they ought to have done and being used to chastise Israel. The Lord is still in control, even as Israel goes into exile, even as they seem to think that all hope is lost. The Lord is still in control. The imagery in these verses of 10 and 11 are this image of these messengers going forth from the king's palace. We talked about how the heavens are the throne room of God, and so we have him sending from the heavens the rain and the snow. We have this beautiful picture of God's work in everyday life, where he sends rain and snow to provide water, to water the earth, to give us food, and he provides all that we need. He provides bread, he provides seed, This water and this rain goes forth, and we read in the Psalms and in other places that all these things bear witness to God. They're heralds of God's general providence and how he works in these things. He is not out of control of anything, but he is controlling even the rain and the snow and sending these things to give us bread, to give us seed, to give us life. Without him, we have nothing. To be apart from the Lord and his sustaining work is to have no existence at all. But because the Lord continues to sustain us, we continue to have life, we continue to breathe, and we see this even among those who do not deserve these good things. We do not deserve these good things. But even among those who do not confess to be Christians, the Lord shows his kindness. He lets his reins fall on the just and on the unjust. And we're told in Romans 2 that these kindnesses are supposed to call those people to repentance. The second messenger we see is the word of the Lord, which proceeds from his mouth. And what is being said here is, just as surely as we see the rain and the snow come down, so surely will my word accomplish its purposes. In Southern California, things are rather dry most of the time, but last winter I remember being here and seeing the beautiful super bloom that happened where we had all this green grass and these flowers sprout up. It's a result of the rain and the snow coming, and we know that that's how things normally work, is rain and snow water the earth and bring forth this life. And we know that's certain, we take it for granted. And in this comparison, the Lord is saying, much more certain is my word. It Proceeds from my mouth as a messenger, as a herald. It comes through the mouth of Isaiah, my prophet, who is coming and proclaiming these things to you. My very word. My word is inevitable. What my word says will come about. Throughout those chapters, I reference 40 through 55 of Isaiah. He often speaks about how He's prophesying, he's calling forth these things so that no one can say, oh, I knew this was going to happen. My idol told me this was going to happen. He does things so out of left field that no one can see it coming, but he has prophesied in his book, in scripture, about what will happen to prove that he is the only God, and that idols are nothing but dumb and mute things that can do nothing. The Lord has all power and all glory, and his word accomplishes what he sends it out for, What he says will happen, will happen. As we think about that, what has he promised will happen here? He's promised what happens in verses six through seven. He said that he will forgive the wicked. He will have compassion on them when they come to him. The word of the Lord is more certain than what you may personally experience or feel. Even as our conscience may accuse us of being wicked of being undeserving of the grace of God. The word of the Lord tells us that if we are in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. We can trust his word above our conscience, above our faults and twisted ideas of things. The Lord has fully paid for the sins of those who are in Christ, and there's no further condemnation for the Christian, even though your conscience may accuse you even though the devil may whisper in your ear and tempt you to despair, the Lord has promised through the Lord Jesus Christ that he has forgiven your sins, that he has given you eternal life. He has brought you to himself in repentance and faith, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has said that he will not lose any who have been given to him. This is what the word promises, and we are told, and it is clear through the prophecies that have become true, through all the Old Testament prophecies of Christ, who has come, who has lived, and who has died, that his word is certain. We can trust him when he says that he will forgive us when we come to him. We can trust him when he says that he will love us and have compassion on us. And as we think about this too, we should note the means by which he does this. It's through his word as well. We know that the Apostle Paul speaks about how faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And this is what the Lord uses to call us to repentance. Perhaps you're wondering, what does it mean for the Lord to be near? I thought he was everywhere all the time. The Lord is specially near in his word and in the proclamation of his word. That is the means he has chosen. The folly of preaching, as Paul puts it, is how the Lord brings people to repentance and faith. So the Lord is near in his word. The Lord is removing all excuses you and I may have of refusing to come to him in repentance and faith. The Lord will forgive those who come to him. There's a free offer, as we read in the earlier verses, he is imploring, come to the waters, come and drink, come and eat food, you who do not have money. The Lord has provided it all. The Lord Jesus Christ has promised abundant life to those who come to him. It is a free offer for those who come. And we know elsewhere in scripture that those who come have been drawn by the Lord. The Lord has led them to himself. So we have seen that the Lord is able to forgive the wicked because his ways are not like our ways. We have seen that he is able to forgive the wicked because his purposes are inevitable. And his purpose is to forgive the wicked through Christ and through his work. And we also see that it's because of his unbreakable covenant. We'll read verses 12 and 13. of people being led forth from exile in joy and going forth in peace. And remember that the you being referred to here is the wicked. The Lord will bring the wicked forth in joy. The Lord will lead forth the wicked in peace. They will no longer be at enmity with God, but they will be given peace with God. And as we heard this morning, we ought to rejoice in this. We ought to take joy in the promises and in the things that the Lord has done. He has given us such a bountiful gift He has given us salvation itself. We who were enemies with him and who deserve his wrath have been given peace. We have this certainty from him. We also, as we read this, perhaps you're wondering maybe this is just Israel coming back from exile, but the imagery here and in the context of the rest of Isaiah, this seems to be more of a cosmic redemption. This is not just Israel coming back from Babylon. We have the very creation itself, breaking forth into singing, the trees of the field clapping their hands. We have them going forth in joy and peace. But we know when Israel came back from the exile that it was joyous, but there was also disappointment as they saw the temple being rebuilt and they saw it did not measure up to the glory that it once had. This is a greater fulfillment. And we see this even if we just flip back to Isaiah 54. If you have your ESV, it might just have the heading, the eternal covenant of peace. It's an eternal covenant, not one that can be broken again by Israel as they have so often done. If you read the book of Judges, if you read any of the books of Samuel or Kings, over and over we see Israel being unfaithful, breaking the covenant and then receiving punishment for it. But this is a covenant that is unbreakable, it is eternal. So what covenant is this I think with this imagery of, the, of this cosmic joy, the mountains and the hills breaking forth into singing, and the thorn and the briar being replaced by the cypress and the myrtle, evergreen trees, we're looking at the new covenant, the covenant of grace that was promised in the garden. And this imagery of thorns and briars may call to mind Genesis 3.18. They're not the same exact words, but the imagery is similar where the Lord curses the ground after Adam has sinned and he curses the ground where he will have to toil and thorns will come up and briars and they will keep him from working with ease. And what's happening here is these signs of the curse are being removed and the wicked are no more. They have been made right with God and they're being led forth in joy and in peace. If we think back to Genesis 3, we think back to that broader context of Genesis 3 where the Lord has made a promise that the serpent will not win, the serpent who caused Adam to fall, who gave him this temptation where Adam fell of his own free will, he will not be victorious ultimately, but the seed of the woman will come. There will be enmity between him and the serpent. And even though his heel will be bruised, he will break the serpent's head. He will strike a death blow so this is pointing to that covenant of grace that's promised back all the way in genesis and that is unfolded throughout the pages of scripture and that we are still looking forward to the consummation of it jesus christ has established the new covenant between god and man through his blood through the shedding of his blood on the cross that is where he struck the death blow against the serpent as he was nailed to a tree bearing all of our sins as the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. He strikes the death blow to the serpent now and we are told that he as the strong man, the son of man has bound the serpent, has bound the devil. So the devil is no longer free to go ranging about and devouring Christ's own, but we've been freed from that fear. We have been freed from the condemnation that we deserve, the wrath of God that we deserve, because of what Christ has done. And we know that this has happened because we know that he has risen. He has risen from the dead and this is the sign of the new age coming, the new covenant that has been established where we have peace with God, we no longer have fear. We read all throughout the pages of the New Testament, especially as we read the epistles, that this is a new thing that is happening and that is being promised here even in Isaiah. And we're looking forward to when this new age will be consummated, because right now you and I still struggle with sin. We know through the cross that God's justice has been satisfied, that God can be just and the justifier. He did not just wink at sin, but he punished it. Even though Christ did not deserve it, he bore our sins for us. And so we know we have peace with God, but still there's that remnant of Adam, that remnant of the old man in us where we still struggle with sin. And so we're still looking forward to what is promised here, this beautiful picture of peace and joy, of all the signs of the curse being removed and of a new heavens and a new earth where we will be able to be with God, where we will be able to dwell in his presence, where there will be no more crying, where there will be no more despair over our own failings, our own sins, but we will no longer sin. We will be made like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can look forward to that day with great joy. And as we consider these things, let's not forget that all these wonderful things about how God is not like us, how he is free to save us because he is not like us, how his purposes are inevitable, and how he has made an everlasting, unbreakable covenant of peace. All of this is connected with a call to repent, to turn to him. We read in scripture and we read in the catechism that those who do not repent will not be saved. They will not be able to enter this joy and this peace that has been laid out before us. So it would be Remiss not to urge you if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not repented of your sins, to seek him, to turn to him, to turn from your sins and to turn to Christ. He is our advocate. He is the king of peace. In his first coming, he has made salvation possible. He has been given the name that is above every name. But in his second coming, he will come in judgment. And those who have not acknowledged him and confess him as their savior now, will be forced to acknowledge him as Lord, but it will not be a saving acknowledgement. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He will forgive your sins, he will pay for them, and he will give you his righteousness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your ways are not like our ways. We do not understand all of your ways, we do not understand your thoughts, but they are marvelous thoughts and you have shown us that you are for us and not against us in Christ. We pray that we would seal up these truths on our hearts that you would help us to never forget them. We pray that you would draw your own to yourself by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.